Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. We were delighted this week to have Dr. Tarek Razik on the podcast with us. Dr. Razik is a trauma surgeon at McGill University and a major figure in global surgery in Canada. He pondered with us the questions of how we can best make an impact in global surgery without repeating the neocolonialism of the past. He also reflects on his experiences working with the ICRC and the sometimes jarring experience of returning back to quote-unquote civilian life. Please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Tarek Razik. Yeah, so I, I uh, grew up my whole life in Montreal. I was uh, I'm born in Ottawa, but uh, really my family moved to Montreal when I was extremely I, around one year old. And uh, I really spent my whole life growing up in uh, in Montreal, Montreal or to the core. Uh, so that's that's my background here. And, and and I did almost all of my training as a you know kid from Montreal at, at McGill University. So I did my undergrad at at, uh, at McGill. I did my uh, med school at McGill, and I did my general surgery training at, at McGill. So that was a lot of McGill. So it was good. At, after that, I I had decided to pursue a fellowship in uh, trauma and critical care. And fortunately, was able to get into the program in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. So that was a really big, um, you know, shift for me. And I think it really had a significant impact to round out having a different experience in my training, which was quite um, very, very important and very rewarding for me, that experience. What was that experience like uh, being in Philadelphia? And how was that? How did that kind of how was that kind of different from the training that you had experienced up until that point? Well, it, it's interesting. So when I when I trained at McGill, I, and I think probably one of the reasons why I, I was guided into going into trauma as a major component of my career was that I started my residency training in 1993, uh, you know, so dating myself. And that was the year, actually, that the trauma system was implemented in Quebec. The regional trauma system was begun uh, just around the year before that. And so, you know, I, I witnessed over the course of my training, the, the, the maturing and the growth of the, uh, of an organized regional trauma system in my urban environment and at our academic health center at the, one of our hospitals in Montreal general, uh, was designated as one of the adult sites to be a regional site, uh, for that regional trauma system in uh, in Quebec. And so I watched that mature and grow. But as you can imagine, when that initiated, although there was some really strong leadership in our Department of Surgery and in our health system to get that going, obviously, um, we didn't have a lot of experience. And there wasn't a lot of uh, teams that were trained at the get go to engage with that, you know, attempt to have a more sophisticated uh, health system around trauma care. And so 
you know, despite watching all of that mature and the evolution of that over my early years of training, when I went to Philadelphia, I entered a system where they had had a mature regional trauma system, probably going back more than 20 years. Uh, and so, you know, I, I entered a world that was light years ahead of where we were, where I came from in terms of the maturation of that system. So it was a real eye opener. I, I ended up, you know, very fortunately working with an amazing team there. Just, you know, the luck of a fellowship draw. There was a powerhouse group there. Uh, Dr. Schwab ran that program uh, with, with was one of the early guys setting up uh, regional trauma systems and maturing them in academic centers in the States, even at the time from when he initiated the program with Dr. Rotundo, uh, Dr. Cotter, Dr. Pat Riley. These guys had a huge influence on me, but they came from a place where they had grown up in a system uh, that was already quite mature. So I got to work with these guys who were very experienced, very skilled trauma surgeons who had dedicated their entire careers and were now in their mid to late career phases, um, having focused exclusively on trauma. And it was a massive, had a massive impact on me to see these guys, to see how they worked and how good they were and how focused they were on trauma, you know, not just clinically, but yeah, clinically, it was very impressive, but academically, uh, research-wise, uh, system design, you know, their their vision for how to do things, training, you know, it was just a real eye-opener. I think that's such an interesting story. And, you know, you're right. We we talk about it, I think, all, all of us in Canada that have gone to the U.S. and to these really special, special places. And obviously, Dr. Schwab's program in Philly that you were at is, is clearly one of them. It's one of these sort of iconic and, and uh uh, legacy type centers and and programs and it's it's amazing how much we all learn it's it's also sort of a when you say like a, almost like a force of nature no matter where you come from Canada to walk into these centers where these folks are so dedicated they're like time wise um, uh, mentality wise drive wise like they're sort of all in to to try and fix injury at every level right yeah, uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. And like you, you, you know, where you trained uh, is the same experience. I'm sure or very similar. You go into these big houses, uh, these big training centers, and the, but the, and the dedication to to trauma as a surgical disease uh, that you were. I would go in on rounds in the morning, and you'd had had a you would have had a like transpelvic gunshot wound that would have come in the night before. And and one of the attendings, the Riley, was classic for this. Would would come around the fellow's desk, fellow's office area and just throw like three papers down on your desk about management of transpelvic gunshot wounds. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, yes, there's literature on transpelvic gunshot wounds. Like he goes, you better read up on this before morning report. And that's in the morning. It's just, you know, it, it was just uh, blew my mind how sophisticated they were. You know, yes, these are unexpected events, the whole paradigm of trauma to me and a lot of critical emergency care and including critical care. Um, is around the fact that you know that disease process is not something that's predictable in terms of exactly what is going to happen exactly when but it is predictable unfortunately that it's going to happen and so it just because it's not something you can predict to the way you could predict a scheduled program of healthcare you still should be prepared for it it's not something that just because it's trauma you're unprepared you that's that, that that's one of the things that blew me away with those teams was how organized and prepared they were to deal with what was going on. I love the way you frame that. 
You know, one, one of the things that, that you and, and Matt Kaminsky have organized, um, you know, based on your, your current position and your history of the Trauma Association of Canada has been our, our sort of bi-weekly uh, case-based rounds, which I would encourage all of our listeners to, to check out if they can, because they're, they're really quite phenomenal. And it's interesting, uh, you know, I sort of love when, when you and Matt go across the country to some degree and really across the continent and ask about differences and approaches to care. And it's always interesting for me to see how variable, in particular, some of the system um, limitations or or benefits maybe of a given place, you know, actually actually uh, come up. I, I'm curious from a Quebec point of view, for our, maybe our non-Quebec listeners, what some of the challenges that you guys deal with, maybe day-to-day in injury care that are different from the rest of the country or pockets of the country, and then what some of the really great benefits with your uh, super high speed group would be as well. Well, you know, I, that's really well framed, Chad. I, I think that, you know, the, uh, the, um, those case rounds that we host through the trauma association of Canada and with Matt, you know, and his experience having transitioned to working at cook training and working at cook County in Chicago, um, you know, you go and you get these experiences from very mature elite teams. Uh, and I think the, all of us, who are you know working back in the Canadian context especially, but you know are trying to sort of continue to bring back that and develop and mature that expertise and that infrastructure for dealing with that part of the health system um, in an in a increasingly more sophisticated way and trying to implement better infrastructure and better clinical care programs for that kind of for those kinds of problems. And I think I see it as one of our major responsibilities as professionals in this area of work is to try to figure out ways to enhance the capacity for us to serve the community, to take care of these sort of emergency and critical scenarios and trauma being a very key component of that. Um, And what I find to be relatively underdeveloped systems in healthcare design relative to scheduled care system. One of the uh, aspects of this is this clinical case rounds is a way for us to build a community and to exchange and share that um, that experience in, in, ev- in evolving the systems in different parts of the country by sharing our experiences through that, that medium. And I think it's been really fun. It's created a community and it's allowed us to share our experiences, which has um, just been a phenomenal experience. And it's one way we can hopefully learn more about each other, learn from each other, uh, and hopefully work together to actually implement uh, ongoing changes that increase the sophistication of the systems that people can access around the country for emergency care, uh, specifically trauma. Um, what you put in place to manage trauma systems is the type of thing that impacts all of emergency care, right? A lot of that infrastructure has a major umbrella effect or halo effect on, on what you're able to manage for all emergency service systems. And then, you know, specifically, every region has different um, elements that they, that they excel at and different elements where there's gaps in the system design and, and Quebec, I, I would have to say has some s- surprisingly sophisticated, like very impressed. I'm extremely impressed with how in Quebec, the regional trauma system is organized from a data acquisition and, a, and, a, and how it is um, overviewed, over, overseen uh, by all of the leadership in Quebec with a really robust data collecting system, um, which has been really well developed out of uh, the Quebec city team. Uh, and who have developed an amazing ability to acquire really good quality indicators uh, along the lines of what the U.S. has done with TQIP, um, 
to be able to assess our performance and to gauge it against our peers and colleagues throughout the entire um, system in Quebec, like 50 something plus hospitals that are interconnected in a very inclusive trauma system, um, which has really performed very well from the point of view of the parts that are engaged in that system. Where we have very significant um, gaps in that system is the ability for the regional communities that are a bit more outside the urban centers to access that system. So we have some significant gaps in Quebec in our critical care transport capacity, which you know, clearly has an impact on uh, the trauma system and clearly has an impact on a community's ability to access that system. Um, so we, we fail to have a significant, uh, adequately robust critical care transport, including not just uh, a lack of organized regional uh, rotor wing or helicopter transport, but also ground uh, critical care transport for interfacility movement of more critically ill patients, uh, not exclusively trauma patients, right? Again, there's an overlap with these systems and what impact it can have on a broad array of time-dependent critical illness, you know, things like stroke. Uh, things like uh, neonatal uh, pediatric critical care services, things like general critical care service for sepsis, um, and, and obviously for trauma, major trauma recovery. The mortality impact of having these robust health systems for trauma care and for all emergency services, I think, are well-documented. Some of the most well-documented impacts in all of healthcare, all comers to any aspect of healthcare. Um, we know the impact of these systems are tremendous. Um, failing then to give equitable access where it is actually feasible um, to communities for them to gain that advantage of that mortality impact for, you know, having an ability to access that kind of care is, well, it's just something we really need to work on. And, and there's a lot of movement right now. So I'm actually quite hopeful more than I have been in the past that something's actually starting to roll downhill here for that. So we'll hopefully we'll be able to see that change. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, again, you know, just to highlight the, the differences across the countries here, the country, you're exactly right. There's regions that really struggle with one one particular component of the system and others that excel at the same one. So it would be nice if, if we can all continue to grow together and, and learn from each other. If we shift gears here a little bit, uh, Tarek, now I, I, I know I think most of us have a certain vintage across the country. When we think of you, we think of super sage insight and advice. We think of uh, your clinical acumen, your humor and your humility, but I, I think it's probably safe to say that although you may not be a 1.0 in terms of you know, the history of global surgery in this country, you're really, I think the most notable and certainly a very long-standing uh, surgeon who's in, been interested in global surgery. And I think you're the first person that comes to a lot of us, uh, to our minds when we think about that, that topic and, and really you've deserved that. I'm curious if you can walk our listeners into your definition of global surgery and then talk to us a little bit about how you got into that sort of interest, how you've matured it and some of the experiences you've had. Well, that's really generous, Chad. I think, um, you know, yeah, I've, I've been very privileged to work in, a, in and explore working in a more global context uh, in the area of work that I think we both share quite a bit of passion for which is trauma systems, trauma, clinical care, emergency service, critical care services. Um, it's a fascinating area of work. And again, been tremendously privileged to do that on a, on a, on a broader scale, having had these, some of these opportunities over my career. But I really, I really feel that um, you're overstating my, 
my, my role. I've been very fortunate to work with some mentors uh, who really showed me that that path was an, was an option. I mean, I think when I began my training, I didn't really understand or realize that there was an that the skill sets that you're learning in, in this profession are extremely universal. They're very portable. Every community needs increasingly sophisticated support and development in terms of accessing healthcare services, especially for emergencies. Um, it, to me, defines something that approaches a fundamental uh, right for communities to have access to. Um, and, and it's something that, in, that I think is really critical for any, any community to be spending a lot of energy and effort to develop for their own safety and security in, in, in their settings. So I, it, it, and I, I didn't really appreciate the, the, the universal nature of that when you're just sort of diving headfirst into acquiring um, the skill set so that you can develop and, and obtain that expertise. But I, I owe it to a lot of my mentors, both in, in, at McGill and in Philadelphia, um, who really sort of opened that door and showed me that reality because of some of the work that they were doing. Um, and then that was instrumental in me then being able to continue down that path. So I really owe a great debt to some of the senior guys that came before me, the, the David Mulders, the Ray Browns, the team in Philadelphia that we've mentioned already, et cetera. But yeah, it's been fascinating. And, and I think the concept of global surgery to me is sort of fallen into it by the nature of that universality of that of of the importance i think of that of that kind of system in any society to be present and to be good but the concept of global surgery to me is a term and, and what it means is very i don't know that i fully have my head wrapped around what that means to me it's simply the work that i do i i i at home i help to manage and 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 run and clinically work in um, a trauma and critical care system and a, and a, in, in a surgical department. And, and that's my responsibility, both on the man helping to organize the clinical work, uh, doing a lot of, because I, I, and I, something that I enjoy tremendously is working on the education and training side to, to grow new generations of people and help them become better than we are doing this work over time and at, at, a, at a university teaching center to help with the teaching and, and, and training aspect of things. And then also on the research and academics side of things to be involved as much as I can, uh, where I'm able to, to help propagate an, an increasing sophistication in, in our knowledge of what we do and how we do what we do. And that's, that's what I do, but that's what I do with colleagues in other parts of the world. So I, there's other colleagues in other parts of the world who work in other environments who are trying to do exactly the same thing because again, of the universality of the need for that kind of infrastructure for any uh, population and I work with them they work with us and we work together as partnerships as to forging those partnerships professionally and personally to explore that work together learning from each other and learning how to best apply it in different contexts and gaining an understanding uh, of the global environment of that different of those different contexts within which these systems have to be developed and deployed so that populations have access, increasingly better access to increasingly better health systems and delivery of that um, health system so that they can have better uh, outcomes for when things happen, um, when they require emergency services. And that to me is what global surgery, global health is about. It's about creating a community that, just like we were talking about earlier, creating a Canadian community to explore and deal with the different um, 
gaps, learn where things are going well, learn where things are not going well, and understand just in the Canadian context, um, the wide disparities of the contexts within which we have to deploy some of these healthcare systems uh, from the far north to our urban environment, some of our very uh, remote rural environments, uh, you know, and there's a wide array of, of contexts in the Canadian scene, and how do we then deploy and give the best access possible to those communities for this kind of care. It's the same thing on a global scale. So we all learn from each other. That's to me what what global surgery. I like the fact that you uh, deliberately kind of talked about the fact that, you know, it's just about uh, global surgery isn't about this kind of uh, far away or foreign uh, concept where you go somewhere else, quote unquote, uh, to, to deliver care. But it's also about improving the disparities within Canada of which there are many like you know you don't have to spend very long working in any hospital to realize that it that are despite you know all the the principles that come under the Canada Health Act about uh, equitable care for everybody it's not equitable um, as we've talked about a bunch already Um, you know there's there's lots of different motivations for why people get interested in global surgery Um, and I I from what I understand you used to visit your family, extended family back in Egypt as a child growing up. I wonder how much of an impact that kind of had in, in terms of motivating you to do this work. I know certainly when I was growing up, uh, we would we would go to uh, visit our family in Pakistan uh, every year or, or every two years almost. And that has a profound, profound, profound impact on you as a person. I mean, you, you realize like, you know, I have this memory of going to visit uh, a friend of ours who had actually gotten shot in, in, in for, for uh, you know, whatever reason um, that I won't go into, but he'd, he'd been shot. And so we went to the hospital in, uh, in, in Pakistan and you could like, even the, the corridors of the, the hospital were covered in this um, beetle juice, like ban, which is what people chew. And it's like the whole corridor is just all red, stained red by people spitting and that just that like just that little detail kind of stuck in my head. Like I could not have ever imagined a hospital uh, kind of in that shape, uh, and that certainly had a profound impact on me. So I'm curious what what impact uh, going to Egypt uh, as a child had had an impact in terms of your motivation to do this work. Yeah, uh, Amir, thanks for sharing that. I think that um, that's a I, I think that's a very similar experience to what I have would have gone through when I was younger and would have been, you know, taken to visit my family, my father's family in, in Egypt, you know, and going to uh, Cairo and Alexandria and then traveling to the south of the country where you have some family in the south as well is um, it, it just, it just cracks open your mind and it, it prevents you from having a more narrow minded perspective on what the world really is and what the human condition in the world is when you go to a place and actually embed in the place within a family and live as one lives in those in, in those environments you know so i it just my you it, i remember as a child we would go to the fam my family's home in alexandria and you know there'd be a pen in the back with chickens and turkeys and some other animals and by the time we would have left from having stayed there for a couple of weeks, there are far fewer of them in the pen than when we arrived. And, you know, there, so it's, you know, the realities of how, and there was no refrigeration really commonly available at the time when I would be visiting there when I was young. And, you know, you just see a different reality of life 
that people live. Um, and like I said, it just, it just opens your mind to that. And it, and also that even though things can be quite different and they were, you know, I grew up in Canada was as a kid, you know, and I would do these intermittent visits to Egypt and, but I'm visiting family. And so you realize that these differences are not quite as one might think they are, or not as significant as one might think they are at first face value. When you go there and live with your family in these very different environments, they all of a sudden don't really become so different. And yet at the same time, like you were saying, the differences you are, you remark on the differences as well, but that you integrate them into your life. So it, it just shakes down a lot of these barriers. It prevents you from thinking about people as other. You you integrate things, and it becomes much more of a of a of a a, a very different worldview. I think that you can't escape. Then that's just embedded in your mind. Uh, you know, and the, but and the degree of poverty that 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 you see um, is is striking, and and you just realize that there are these um, tremendous inequities in, in the world that exist that people have to live through and live with. Um, and and it's, uh, it, it just gives you a, a wildly different perspective on that. And it makes a part of who you are um, as opposed to something else, other elsewhere. Um, and and that, that just changes your whole perspective on, on everything, uh, you know, and, and I think I've had such a tremendous privilege. I really, you know, one of the most rewarding things I think through engaging with colleagues around the world, as much as I have been able to in the work that I do is because you embed within that work. So you're not really, you're not there just visiting, you're there working with colleagues. They're very in, in, intimately, very significantly. And you begin to have this shared experience. And because you have a shared common experience in the work that you do, you immediately are able to engage on a, on a much deeper personal level, I find as well. And you have, and again, it opens your mind to this reality that exists in the, in the world that you are able to engage extremely, I feel extremely fortunate to have been able to, to meet colleagues and develop relationships with colleagues around the world and explore with them their struggles share the, the, sim the unbelievable similarities of the struggles we all have doing the work that we do, um, and yet become very appreciative of the differences and, and the inequities in, in the world in terms of how we have to meet those challenges and the difficulties that there are in meeting those challenges and to work together to try to find ways to improve how that all plays out and, and find strategies, help with education and training, help with system implementation for better healthcare systems, design, you know, policies, um, and learn from them, from their expertise in terms of, well, how, what are the realities and how do we then contextualize some of the things we have learned um, in terms of adapting them to make them work in different contexts. And that's where I think you have that respect for colleagues who are working in very difficult circumstances, but doing amazing things. And you develop a deep amount of respect for their knowledge and expertise of doing it how they do it in their context and you know you begin to rely on that very heavily when you work in this more global context and and you develop a deep uh, respect for these individuals and again Bray, you break down those traditional barriers of of people and you realize that you're all that the similarities are overwhelming and the respect is quite significant there that develops yeah you know we have a certain amount of arrogance perhaps maybe arrogance isn't the right word but we have this certain sense of like you know whatever people are doing out there it must be substandard to what's going on in canada or the the us or or europe but then when you actually go and spend some time working 
anywhere, you know, uh, whether that's Pakistan or Egypt or any of the places that, that we'll talk, that hopefully we can get into with you on the podcast, you realize like how tremendously resourceful, amazing, brilliant so many of these uh, people are in in being able to do the things that they do in this in the with the constraints that they have you know dr cameron talked about this concept uh, on the podcast of like frugal innovation where people develop innovations that because of resource limitations and then actually are able to bring that back to sort of high resource settings and uh, and innovate in that way we wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience working with icrc in sudan that must have been a tremendously powerful experience can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like oh yeah definitely um i just go back one a little bit there on, on what you were talking about that i think the term i would use for how we sometimes view ourselves and how how not exclusive to healthcare but definitely within in healthcare is is hubris we do have quite a bit of hubris and, and i think we need to work to diminish that and have a bit more respect for our other colleagues around the world and I'll just give a very, very brief example of a woman um, who I worked with in Dar es Salaam in one of the earlier projects we were engaged in. And she was an orthopedic surgeon. So she's Tanzanian. She's, and she did her training in orthopedic surgery in China, in Mandarin. And she had young children at the time as well. And then she was, I met her, she was back in Tanzania working as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon um, and she was helping us implement some of the basic um, programs we were doing with databases and et cetera. Um, and she, we were touring a new build of part of our hospital that was being built by the Chinese, um, not unusual in, in Africa at this time anyway. And, and they were building and she was, you know, showing us the new structures being done. And she got a, you know, it was a bit, um, couldn't find her way around in the new build trying to get it to show us where the new receival trauma area was going to be. And there were a couple of, uh, workers uh that were from the chinese company that were there and she went up to them to ask them to you know where should i go to see this where this area is going to be built and she just dropped this whole uh request in mandarin on them and you know the looks on their the looks on their faces were quite hilarious and and i and i you know it was uh it's just some of these people you work with are just unbelievably impressive like i just look looking at her i'm like what was was it like for her to train and learn Mandarin and train in China and orthopedic surgeon and come back and be working in a, in a very challenging environment in Dar es Salaam. I mean, it, it blows my mind what some, of, what some of these people are able to do and achieve. And we don't tend to have that perspective of what's going on in the world that's as well-informed as it needs to be for us to have a better, in, more informed perspective on what's really going on. And part of that is, is born out of that hubris, you know, so... I think it's a major challenge we have to educate ourselves to overcome more and to be more open-minded uh, towards what what is happening in the rest of the world and and so i just so i deviated there sorry so i'll go uh, the, the icrc thing was really um you know i had always been very interested in in working and experiencing the, the the same you know type of work that i was passionate about that i had trained in to find ways to do it more expansively beyond my own context, to learn something outside of my own context that I was in, in, in Montreal. And, and one of the, so where does one do that? Where do you go to expand your horizons as a young, just grad, you know, relatively newly graduated practicing surgeon in this field, where do I go? How do I access uh, uh, an environment that I can explore the limits and push myself to explore further limits, put myself in an uncomfortable place. You know, if that's, one way to frame it to grow 
to be able to grow professionally. Um, where do you do that if you want to do trauma? You know, so one of the first things I thought of was actually I was I actually uh, was thinking of and very seriously considered joining the uh, Canadian military in their medical corps to get access to do that kind of work in different contexts. But at the time, and this is how old I am, I guess, but at the time they weren't allowing specialists to join in the reserves. You had to join regular military and that was just not an option for me. Uh, I wasn't that interested in the military to get a lot of, a lot of issues for me for that. And um, joining the regular forces just didn't make any sense at all. So I, where was the next place I looked to, to find ways to have in an organized, well-managed, you know, system to access an environment where trauma, where you could really push yourself and experience something in the, in the realm of being a trauma surgeon. Well, I, I went to the, I went to the ICRC and, um, and I'm happy I did actually, it was a really interesting, the very, very fascinating organization that I can't tell you, I fully comprehend. I think it's the only non-nation state that has a seat at the UN. Like they have a really interesting role in the, in, in the, in the structure of humanitarian activity in the world. And it's, it's fascinating. Um, but I, it was, it was very, very interesting to do that. So we, I, I got deployed to this place called Lokichokyo, which I think is no longer actually running, but it was one of their training environments where they would send younger recruited surgeons working with the ICRC and their war surgery teams to work in a more long-standing installation on the border dealing with, of Kenya and Sudan, dealing with the con, with the conflict in Southern Sudan that had been going on for decades at the time. Um, and still is a grumbling, a grumbling issue in that region. Uh, and uh, you would go to this place and you would go with senior surgeons and they would help to get you trained so that you could learn how to function in that context within their scope of practice that they had to, that they define in the ICRC and to understand how to work in that, in that specific type of environment, which was, you know, quite a obviously different environment than where I had been training or working in previously. Um, and it was a fascinating experience. What was really one of the most striking things was the integration of a, of a global community working together to support uh, a, a regional community that was struggling with crisis and lack of access to healthcare infrastructure and to help support the delivery of healthcare in a, in a difficult context to communities that were in desperate need for it. And, but, you know, there were anesthetists from Australia and Russia, and there were uh, nurses from all over the world working there, but all on the same team, you know, and it was really a phenomenal experience uh, to work with these integrated international teams, all with the, working in the same, you know, way, working in the same, con working together to provide care to communities that were in, in, in crisis. So it was a really interesting experience. Uh, the, I'll never forget the first day. It was a British vascular surgeon who I was relieving, who I was taking over his post from. And then it was a, we had a couple of day overlap. And he was taking me around the, uh, the, the installation and showing me the operating rooms, et cetera. And the, the operating rooms, when you walked in, it was one large room with three operating tables in the same room. Um, and it was a busy day when we walked in and all three tables were running. And I looked at it. I'm like, oh my god, this is mash. I, I, this, I was like, I couldn't believe that I had 
entered this context. I was, this is, I was just so excited to be there. It was unbelievable, but also extraordinarily nervous because uh, you had to deal with like obstetric emergencies, orthopedic emergencies, and general surgery emergencies. It was sort of the three big things you deal with in surgical emergencies. And um, it was quite challenging. You know, one of the things that I, I've noticed from, obviously I've never done this myself, but you know, in talking to some of my classmates from my master's who had been very heavily involved with, with MSF or ICRC, um, one of the things they talk about is just like the, the camaraderie uh, that, that gets built in going through that experience. But then almost like there's, there's this disconnect when you come back. Um, I don't know how many months you were there or how long you were there for, but you know, depending on the length of, of stay with, with four people when they're deployed, actually coming back to their sort of civilian life can be quite challenging or, or jarring because, you know, you spend so much time in these very intense environments where you really see people really suffering, like for real, really suffering. Not None of the, you know, my coffee order kind of got, you know, misplaced or, or misunderstood. Like this was real, real, real suffering that people saw and so then for them to come back to their civilian life was actually quite hard i don't know if you felt the same way or what was that transition like uh coming back yeah no that's i think that's a very um real and common experience uh and it's complex you know so i think that there are but i think you're absolutely right um i, w I was deployed there for three months uh, and um you know on returning there's it's there's mixed a mixed reaction that you get i find and i've done a couple of deployments with uh with the federation of red cross with in, after the earthquake in haiti i was there as well and you know you you come back from those postings and you're you're right those realities of what you witness and see and in, in again in the human condition that that is the reality of the world you get exposed to that reality um very directly uh, and uh, on returning, it's a double-edged impact, I find. On one side, it allows you to have a quite a different perspective on the petty problems that you perceive yourself to be having that maybe had a greater importance to you relatively before, that afterwards you put it into a much more appropriate context, I think. And it, it makes your own personal struggles, your struggles at work, et cetera, you, it puts them into a completely different pr perspective that I think is actually quite a good one because it's much more realistic for what's the real perspective of what's happening in the world. And you are able to sort of place that in a proper place, I think, and, and not let it overcome you in terms of the pettiness of some of the things that we allow ourselves to become occupied or overly occupied with. Um, so I think it has that as a, as one side effect, but the other one is what you were saying is exactly right. People, you know, for a variety of reasons, either don't really aren't, are never exposed to that kind of situational reality. And also oftentimes, you know, people, you, if I find myself talking about what we witnessed and what you did and the work you had to do and the realities of those environments, you know, people don't want to hear that very much. It's not a very pleasant conversation. It's, and it's not something you want to dwell on too much. People just kind of shun, shy away or shun uh, that, uh, that kind of reality because it's just very unpleasant uh, to hear about it. And, you know, I, I would tell people that I had been 
you know, where were you the last couple of months or what have you done lately? Or you had, a, I remember, I never forget going to a dinner party soon after returning from that deployment in the Sudan. And, and I remember talking to someone and they're like, oh, where are you? you haven't been around the last few, uh, you know, weeks or months. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I was, I was deployed with the ICRC in, you know, in, in, in Southern Sudan. And they're like, oh, you know, we were in Kenya once and we went on safari and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh my God, I can't, I just, you know, I can't handle this conversation right now. And you, so you, you, ha you have to balance, you know, you know, who has that shared experience and just recognize that it's just not a commonly shared experience. And you're not, you're going to have to share that with a selected group of people if you want to really discuss it. And it's not, it's not easy to discuss it with people that don't have a shared knowledge of that reality. And that's just the, the, the deal. And, and, I, and I think it's a bit unfortunate because I think if we had a bit better awareness of that global context, and it doesn't have to be such extreme examples, it's like what we were talking about earlier, just the reality of day-to-day -day life in some of these more you know, uh, low-resource contexts. Uh, I think if people were just a bit more aware of the realities that are going on out there, it would give us a better worldview and it give us a lot more um, ability to understand our fellow humans in the world and what they're going through. And I think we would behave, I think, probably very differently. You know, I think that's an important um, a thought maybe to pause on for a second because it's something that I didn't do personally very well. You know, um, whether it was Haiti, whether it was, uh, you know, East Africa, like a lot of the places that, that I, you know, that I think we've all been, to be honest with you. I just sort of assume when I came back from the first few of these places that everybody would want to hear about these experiences and be informed and be educated to some extent, you know, from, you know, from the perspective of, of the traveling uh, uh, um, group, but you, you're right. You know, people generally don't, don't want to think about suffrage and, and challenges uh, globally. They, they do want to focus to Amir's example on their, on their coffee a little bit. I think that that's a very threatening sort of um, context and, and set of, of, of knowledge um, and experience that, that uh, you're right, you have to tread lightly and be very, very cautious about who you're talking to with regard to depth, eh? Oh, yeah, no, no doubt, Chad. I, 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 you know, you're right. It's, it's a bit of a, you know, you're so consumed in whatever the experiences that you may have just had, and then to be sort of rebuffed about other people maybe not really wanting to hear about all of that is a is a is a difficult one to 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 accept or digest when you are trying to share a, an experience that you're very that marks you and that is you're very passionate about. But by the same time, it's about it's about reversing your your perspective, right? And I find that a very difficult thing for all of us to do is to take a moment and pause and take a, take a, try to understand the point of view of the, of the other person and see it from their perspective and try to approach it then a bit more, I don't know what the right term is, maybe gently or, or more thoughtfully um, from that other point of view. And it is quite jarring for people that don't have that experience or aren't as passionate about that particular aspect of things to hear something that's so, shocking maybe or or distressful to hear about so you you have to approach it very carefully and step in a stepwise fashion and see where there's some receptivity to it but it's just as jarring for me to not to see that there's a disinterest in what i'm so interested in or what i have just been so heavily marked by but i'm from the other point of view that other person is being jarred by the you know, the, the nature of what I'm expressing perhaps, you know, and it's quite overwhelming. And so it's um, having that shared point of view or having the, 
the, the, the perspective of the other point of view and trying to incorporate that in is a very challenging thing to do, but it's a very important thing to do. Another you know, thing that I, I think has really impacted a lot of us was the commentary that you wrote on um, in the, the Lancet Global Health about the need to move beyond descriptive uh, studies and statistics. And just so you know, that's a piece that I printed out and it's still on our wall by the photocopier in our, in our trauma group uh, uh, area because I think it is so powerful. I was wondering if you could sort of communicate that to our to our listeners and, and talk about what what uh, what was the genesis of that. Well, you know, it, it it's um, well, it's quite overwhelming that you that you um, looked at that to that degree because I, it is something that I think our our group um, and a lot of the colleagues that we work with around the world, frankly, is what I've learned that point of view from. Uh, it's not from me. It's from the colleagues that I work with in other parts of the world who express the perspective of, you know, they're fatigued with sort of this, you know, it's an overused perspective term maybe, but this a neo-colonial, you know, approach to doing this kind of work where people would go in, would study something, do a flash study essentially of, you know, you have some funded postdoc who's going to do some, you know, very good research on something, but then nothing comes of it later. That data is taken away and it's brought back to wherever the postdoc came from and is and is maybe published in a beautiful peer-reviewed article. And then the grant money runs out and then nothing happens and nobody goes back. Um, and the colleagues who are there in the environment where the study was done don't benefit from anything that was done and there's no support no ongoing support you're not you're not really building uh, a community that is working together to advance the entire infrastructure that the science the clinical delivery systems the uh, training and education support there's no no, nothing is done from that work. There's nothing implemented on the ground. That is extraordinarily frustrating, as one could imagine, for all of the people and all of our colleagues who are working in these extremely, you know, difficult contexts. And and there's, you know, so that that's, I think, some of the that's some of the concept behind that perspective. Uh, it's. It's for, so I think we're we're very focused on getting the work done and studying the work that's being done. I mean, I think I don't want to minimize how important it is to collect the data, to use objective information to inform what we're doing and evaluate what everybody is doing. It's what I do again. I often do this and I reflect back on my home and what I do at work is I, I accrue a huge amount of data of the work that we do day to day. And then every intermittently, regularly, we analyze that data and review our performance, compare it to our peers, and then make decisions about how we're taking the next steps forward. It's exactly what we need to be doing with all of our colleagues in every other context where they're trying to do that exactly that, um, is you do the work, you implement what we know works by using the local expertise to adapt it to the context working collaboratively with these teams. One of the big overarching principles of the work that we do is it's only by invitation. Uh, I don't think I'd really appreciate someone coming to my home context and telling me what to do. I kind of have a sense of what I want to do in my own 
context in my own work environment. And I, but I would sometimes appreciate help to learn more about what other people have done in other similar environments um, and then work together to implement advances and improvements and changes into my context and then evaluate it, review it, and then proceed. And so I think it's about getting that work done on the ground and studying that work that's done on the ground. And, and it's sort of a five foot view uh, as opposed to a 10,000 foot view, which you should do more intermittently. The five foot view needs to happen every day. The 10,000 foot view needs to happen, but only every once in a while. And the problem is we're only kind of doing the 10,000 foot view and we omit the five foot view. And I think it's to the detriment of our colleagues and it's to the detriment of our, yeah, work, the healthcare system development that we're actually allegedly, that's what we're supposed to be working on is providing better service to the communities. Oh, it's such a beautiful and, and important way to frame it. And I, I think you're right. You know, one of the personal experiences, I think that sort of uh, was the filter with which I looked through your commentary and what probably what made it so powerful is, and not, and not to denigrate or, or pat on the back any specific environment, but, you know, as you know, I, I think Morad Hamid and I have been deeply involved in Cape Town and South Africa for what next year I think will be 20 years. And I think despite the challenges you know, the sustained relationship, as you're pointing out with, you know, Andy Nichol and the team at that, at, at Hurtis Care Hospital, a well-known hospital, has been really fruitful uh, for both groups and, and really made some incredible gains that have been bi-directional without question. And I, I compare and contrast that experience with some of our uh, experiences in Haiti, particularly, where, uh, you know, I felt Initially guilty for sure, um, but just uncomfortable with with the lack of um, sustainment and uh, improvements and um, sort of moving forward and, and leaving some of those. I, I hate the word legacy, but leaving some of those benefits that that help a, a local community going forward. And I'm I'm curious. You know, I, I have some theories as you know those two examples, for example. You know, example in in, in my scenario, but beyond you know me me me. I, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on on why that is. What some of the contributing factors to success versus "quote unquote" failure, or certainly lack of legacy, would would be for for us when we travel to these uh, other locations and and try and embed uh, ourselves within them. Yeah, I you know the work that you guys have done at Grutschor in uh, in Cape Town is is remarkable, and I think it exemplifies exactly the type of long term relationship building and work that benefits both parties, that is really what brings together a, a, a global collegial community that helps us to advance the work that we do in our area of expertise that hopefully provides a benefit um, to the communities uh, and in, in which we live and work respectively. And I think that that's a great model. And I think you're right. One of the things that I think I, I've come to understand is that the the success of a particular engagement isn't really dependent, obviously, on on me. Um, I, I, I have my I have a certain responsibility in that relationship, but there's I, I have to be there has to be some stability, and you have to be invited in, you have to be welcomed in. There has to be an openness and willingness to engage on both sides, and it's a it's a very much a bipartisan relationship. Uh, um, and when there's a, a failure to develop that, I think it's it's a short-term failure because long-term, it will succeed. But the timing is just oftentimes not 
correct because of the lack of ability to engage on either side of, of that equation, whichever side that may be in, in difficulty to do that at the time. And there's lots of things that impact that, whether it's resources, politics, leadership change, there's many, many things. And it really, it's a long game. And I think in the, in the long game view, they will all succeed, but in the short and medium term, they, they don't. And, and that's the nature of relationships. And that's the nature of this kind of work. And I, I, I don't let that bother me as much as I used to. You just keep plowing ahead. Um, and wherever you're working will have a benefit because it's such an integrated activity um, and it's so universal uh, what needs to be done in many communities that uh, wherever you're working will have an impact in other the other environments in some way indirectly as well. Yeah, you know, and I, I think it's fascinating what you're touching upon with that work um, in that, and, and it's the same thing in all trauma systems and, and trauma systems especially, but emergency care systems uh, uh, writ larger is if you think about what trauma systems do as a model for emergency care systems is you take, uh, you know, we know that, and COVID's exemplified this, these diseases implicate different segments of our communities differently. COVID or trauma can impact anyone in our community, but we know that they impact different segments of our community differently. Socioeconomic factors are so key as a public health construct that have consequences for the risks for certain diseases and certain realities in life. No doubt about it. It's, you know, I think that's really well documented. And trauma is definitely a, a disease that is linked to socioeconomic factors. What trauma systems do, which is fascinating, is you take this cohort of the population that is disproportionately affected by a disease like trauma, and you turn what are often, sadly, uninvited guests into our sophisticated healthcare system, especially when you look at scheduled care components, which is the majority of our healthcare system. You take this cohort of our community, which are often not as welcomed and not as easily welcomed. And I refrain, I call it as the uninvited guests who show up. And the trauma system flips that dynamic completely upside down and you turn what are oftentimes uninvited guests and you turn them by the nature of the construct of the trauma system into the VIP. So that trauma patient in the trauma center becomes the VIP of that trauma as they ought to be because they, they have the most critical need and you've designed an entire high level system to respond to the needs of that cohort of our community, which I think is a very uncommon thing. If you think of any other realm of our society where you take the community that is impacted disproportionately by trauma and you turn that community into a VIP, into a very sophisticated component of our healthcare sector, what other part of our community and our society does that? Uh, so I think trauma systems are very fascinating construct from a, from a social point of view, um, what they mean and how they impact uh, and look at the outcome impact of this in those communities and the importance of it. And, and by extension though, interestingly for all of us is anybody can suffer from a trauma event at any time. 
So having these systems in place, and I think COVID has been a remarkable in your face kind of exploration of the same type of inequities of impact and of consequence and of how much we design the welcome for those segments of our communities into our healthcare sector. Um, and if you look at what trauma does as a system, I think it's, uh, so that has, that has broader implications for the global construct of healthcare policy and design that I think are lessons I've learned in trauma system design that are very important aspects of how we look at building and constructing the systems and services in our communities. Yeah, I, I, we, it's just a lovely way of, of putting that and framing this this whole problem, putting that into perspective. Because, you know, COVID has highlighted, as you said, all these inequities that were latent within our society. But suddenly we had to care about it, right? Like if if Peel in in the GTA area is having huge numbers of COVID, suddenly that really matters to us because all of us are getting affected by that. But you know, the reality is we were always interconnected. We always are in some way affected by the, you know, our, uh, our fellow brothers and sisters around the world. Um, and so like, I, in some ways, I think COVID was, as you said, a very amazing way to kind of put that in perspective. Uh, and it, unfortunately, you know, that those disparities live on. I mean, if, if, if you look at the way that the global vaccination rates have gone, it, those, those disparities are still getting propagated forward. Um, so, you know, in terms of global surgery, what do you think the big challenges are going to be going forward? Um, you know, especially thinking about that whole decolonization um, type of perspective, decolonizing global surgery, um, addressing these inequities, which don't seem to have gotten any better uh, necessarily since that Lancet report in 2015. So I'm wondering what you think are the big challenges and big opportunities going forward for, for global surgery, especially in a post-COVID-19 world. Yeah, well, there's your, I, your, I think your comments are excellent. And, I, and, I, and I, um, there's a lot of challenges, you know, but those challenges are what makes it stimulating. Those challenges are what drive the, uh, the, the energy, the enthusiasm and the passion to, because those are challenges there that we need to struggle to overcome. Uh, and uh, that struggle is, is, the, is the fun part, you know. Um, it's a bit unfortunate that we have these uh, struggles and challenges facing us, but I think that that's, that's what is set in front of us and those are the things we have to climb over. Um, so I, I look forward to, those, to meeting those challenges, but, but they are big. And, and I think, you know, look at the, in terms of the COVID analogy to the realities of the trauma and, and, and surgical services that are there. And I think there are a lot of analogies to make between the two um, uh, situations and how they've played out. You look at the G7 meeting that just happened and they did not come, they failed to come to an agreement on a better distribution, a more equitable distribution of existing vaccine stocks and, and for to, it to support the needs of the broader global community. And that's extraordinarily disappointing um, and but sadly not very surprising. And I think, you know, post COVID-19, we all have major struggles. I think there's some interesting advantages that we've been forced to learn in terms of how we uh, deploy some of our in information technology um, in, in allowing us to engage better. So I think we've learned some things that out of coming, coming out of this COVID um, reality that we've learned that I think will help us in going forward, actually, that we can connect a little bit more easily and a little bit more frequently 
with less logistic difficulty to accomplish many, many things. And you know, we've had, for example, a, an education program that we've been doing with a couple of the universities in Senegal in the last uh, a couple of months. And they've been fabulous to do. And, and the integration between our trainee teams and our surgical teams with their teams has been just phenomenal and, and, and quite remarkably easy to do. So I think there's these finding ways to engage in these partnerships and sharing uh, knowledge and information and experiences, I think is uh, one of the struggles, but I think that there are solutions there that we need to learn better to deploy to meet those struggles and meet those challenges. And one of them is IT. So I think the need for better IT support and the, the lack, I mean, for all of us who work in the Canadian healthcare system, the IT in our healthcare system is you know, quite uh, something and, uh, in terms of how not sophisticated it can be at times. And I think we struggle with that in our broader healthcare systems globally. And I think we need to learn better to deploy uh, better IT in supporting the needs, data acquisition, data management. We There is no excuse for us to be this poor in how we accrue and, and analyze data uh, for the health of our populations uh, from, a, from a broad perspective. Uh, there's no excuse for it. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's very disappointing that we are not able to deploy existing, uh, very sophisticated, but quite affordable uh, IT infrastructure to do this better. It's So that's one of the things we have to figure out um, and get this more deployed in terms of gathering better information to inform our, our, our choices and our progress. Um, that's a huge problem. The connectivity and, and finding ways to connect more. But again, that's also being gradually overcome as the IT infrastructure in even very low resource settings is improving dramatically. And I think that allows us to connect better and will improve our ability to share and, 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 and engage in this global context, which is what I think global surgery is really all about, is just sharing our experiences and learning from each other. Um, so I think that that's also one of the challenges. How do we manage to learn how to connect better, more frequently, more consistently, uh, and learn from each other and, and expand our minds, as we said earlier, and, and, and gain that knowledge um, from around the world um, and integrate it better. And I think, you know, that's changing the way people see things is, is one of those major challenges. And I think it comes from a greater shared experience, a greater, um, like, you know, when you share a pop culture experience together, like, the, like Chad talking about MASH, if you're not from the same generation, you kind of don't know what we're talking about if you're from a generation that experienced that you instantly know what that is and there's no explanation required um and so i think we want it we need to enlarge that shared experience so that we can have better connectivity and i think that's one of the great challenges facing the world right now is doing that better and i think we have the tools in front of us that we're using currently for this podcast to do that and we should deploy them why you know we need to work on that very aggressively but one of the underpinning major limitations to getting all of that done is financing. We need to have more uh, value added to putting financing into this area of work. And I think the lack of our ability to comprehend the value of not-for-profit structures in how we design our initiatives so that they can be sustainable fiscally and responsibly managed. I think the idea of donating, the idea of charity, I always kind of gives me a bit of, um, uh, I have a bit of a negative response to those words. I, I, I prefer to see things done in a structured way with partnerships, with a 
proper, well thought out business model that allows the sustainability of the project itself to run. And that to me is hinged upon a sophisticated not-for-profit approach to the design of what we do. And that is going to, that's key so that you're not, you're investing in a not-for-profit structure to allow these programs to continue to flourish and develop. And I see, unfortunately, very, very little of that. You hear a lot about private sector for-profit. In health, that is cannot be the totality of how we approach this, especially in low-resource settings, especially for emergency services, which don't run on a for-profit um, model almost anywhere in the world. You know, th that aspect of healthcare is often run on a not-for-profit structure base. And we need to figure that out in the global, global context and deploy intelligent, well-thought-out, well-invested into uh, not-for-profit strategies to develop healthcare infrastructure. And it's, you know, so that you don't lose your money, but you don't make it for a third party. You're making it to reinforce the, what you're building in the first place and to support the people who are doing that building. Um, and that can be a very successful model and it needs to be worked on. I, it just disappoints me how little investment there is. It's really sh shockingly, dev devastatingly poor how little investing there is in this work given the importance of it it's that and that has to be we have to figure that out without financing it doesn't go anywhere yeah i mean that's that's an, uh, another um you know beautiful and and disappointing uh combined um a viewpoint of of that problem and it's it, it's something I'm, I'm glad you bring up and i'm glad you continue to rail against it publicly because i think voices like yours that are so experienced and so insightful are are what's needed on a continuous basis. It, it you know it, it makes me reflect a little bit in this country when we have very limited resources. What we can accomplish if if the collective motivation and the leadership is there to to do that in the right places. I I think of the Canadian Space Agency. You know, in a, in a country where we've decided that satellite radar technology, robotics, and um, essentially aerospace healthcare, which is really dominated by remote teleultrasonography, are our three areas that we're going to uh, continue to fund and work at. It's amazing that that we can't seem to gain traction and forward movement uh, in the areas you're talking about, um, despite you know the overlap of even those two extremely opposite worlds. It's it's remarkable. So I, I hope you continue to do this and I hope you continue to, to lead all of us because I think, um, you know, we're all supportive of it and, and we all need to do it deep in our soul uh, for sure. Um, we'd like to end the podcast by asking a question I think that you've probably heard us ask a lot of guests, which is that if you were to go back and, and uh, talk to yourself, potentially maybe as a surgical trainee and then secondarily as a, as a junior staff person starting out, what sort of advice would you would you like to have had from from your experiences at this point in retrospect? Yeah, that's a you know that's a tough one, um, and uh, I, I think there's a couple of things I probably would say to myself, and one of them is um, make sure you get yourself very well trained. Uh, and I think there's everyone can reflect back upon parts of their training when you kind of dipped in your enthusiasm and. You know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough slog. Uh, some aspects of of getting getting trained in, in this area of work, um, but keep a keep an eye on that prize of of getting yourself well trained. And I would have been, I think, 
could have helped myself develop what I needed to develop a little quicker and a little better um, when I was in that phase of my of my life when I was focused on training or should have been even sometimes I would argue a bit more focused on my on my own training. Um, and then another thing would be to spend take some time while doing that, and this is a bit of a competing interest thing that you have, but that's the point is that you have to acknowledge the competing interests of what are priorities in your life and balance them more thoughtfully as I would have probably balanced my personal and professional life a little bit better um, in, the, in those, I would say, very challenging early days. I, I think some aspects of my early career, uh, just because of the nature of, of what was going on around me uh, on my early return to Montreal and the infrastructure that was in place at the time was, was quite, I would say, very difficult. Um, and I would have, I would speak, I would definitely tell myself to take it easy a little bit and balance a little bit better my, my personal and professional uh, time and energy, uh, you know, because you can't recover uh, that time later. And uh, you, there's only so much you can do, but I'm, I'm thankful that I, I have a very, my family is ridiculously supportive and I've been very, very fortunate. And I think luckily have been able to balance that, um, I think better and better throughout as I, as I get a little wiser uh, and, have, and have survived some of my mistakes in terms of balancing that, um, doing that balancing act, but, but doing that well, there's different phases in life, you know, and I see some of our young trainees and I think that, you know, there are times when you have to dive into the professional side of your life and dive into your getting yourself well-trained aspect. And you have to really go head first into that when it's the right moment, but understand that there's different phases that need to happen over time. And you have, you have to pull back and then, and then get back in and you have to be able to balance that well. And it's difficult to do. Um, and then one of the other things is I was not to always listen to all the advice you get from from uh, your senior colleagues, you know? So you, you, again, take it everything with a grain of salt. If I, if I had listened to everything that I got told about what I wanted to do early on, both vis-a-vis -vis trauma as a career path, uh, which was very much something that I was told not to do by many uh, people, um, and um, the global work, which I was told by, I think, virtually everybody that I would have spoken to at the time, except for a very few exceptions, uh, who were those mentors who sort of opened the doors for that reality. But the vast majority told me not to do that. And I'm, um, if I would go back, I'd give, I'm very happy that I didn't, it was very intimidating to not listen to some of that advice, but I'm very glad I didn't. So don't hesitate to follow through on your passions because you're in your own time and the other people you may be listening to, yes, you need to, sometimes they're give you tremendously good advice. And I did get some tremendously good advice, but I got some very bad advice as well. And I would say, focus on your own passions and take that in with a grain of salt and incorporate it in a, in, in a, in a way that you are satisfied with and uh, not just to please others. Um, but it's challenging to do that. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.